Welcome to the MFA Made for Agriculture podcast. Here are your hosts, Adam Jones and Cameron Horine. All right, folks, welcome to another episode of the Made for Agriculture podcast. My name is Adam Jones. And I'm Cameron Horine. And we're back today um, discussing what has been and appears to will continue to be a hot topic. Um, you know, I know we had Eric Williams on here. It's been nine or 10 months ago, probably at this point, uh, and discuss grain marketing strategies and, and some just good tips, kind of define some terms that get thrown around in the grain industry a lot. Um, I think it was a, an extremely valuable episode. And I know when, when we had Eric in here that day, we discussed, you know, doing a second, uh, episode at some point, uh, discussing some grain issues. And honestly, as, as in flux as things are, uh, we could probably record one of these every single week, <laughs> just from a day-to-day basis, right? Um, again, especially recently here. But we thought it we thought it would be a good time um, with everything going on in the markets, um, reports coming out, et cetera, et cetera, uh, to sit down and have another grain discussion. And um, so we've got some experts in the room, not counting Cameron and I, of course, and <laughs> and and we're going to kick it around today. So. Uh, collectively known as the Tylers, uh, are in here with us, and uh, I'm going to let you guys differentiate yourselves and uh, give us a little uh, background introduction. Um, whoever wants to start, Tyler, you can start. Sounds good. Thanks, Adam. <laughs> uh, my name is Tyler Francis. I've been with the company for about four years. Uh, prior to that, spent about 10 years uh, trading grain for Bartlett in various different facilities, uh, a couple different states. Uh, originally grew up here in Missouri off of a row crop uh, cattle operation uh, in the center part of the state. Uh, and I'm currently uh, trading the corn and the Milo deck for the company. Uh, I'm Tyler Mitchell. Uh, I'm relatively new to MFA. been here going on eight months now. Uh, before that, spent the last eight years, give or take, with Schooler out in central Illinois. And before that, uh, I was with Bartlett. Uh, anywhere from Wichita, Kansas to Central Illinois. That's kind of what got me out in that area. And I kind of run our soybean and wheat deck. I got you. So does everybody start with Bartlett? Is that like a grain thing? <laughs> they have a really big footprint of career fairs. <laughs> <laughs> I just wondered. I didn't know that there was that commonality. Um, so perfect. Sounds like you guys cover the full gamut then. So we got the corn expert, the bean expert, the wheat expert, and everybody in between, right? Um, so obviously things have been crazy lately. Um, what, what has built so much of that volatility into the marketplace? I, I assume it's volatility. I mean, it's not necessarily maybe a, a inherent super major shortage at this point, but just a lot of volatility. Well, I mean, you can kind of go back in the beginning part of the year and more of the talk was center focused around the South American drought. Uh, and having production issues down there. And as we got into Jan and then into the February uh, space, we saw South American crop production start to come out uh, versus the massive crop that they were going to have in. And they dropped South American uh, crops by almost 15%. Uh, We're almost harvested down there. Uh, By all means, they're still sitting on a large harvest. Sure. Uh, for South America, but uh, that's really where we started to see the volatility kind of kick into the market space, especially into the bean space, uh, and we started a big rally into there. And then, of course, we get to the beginning of March, and then we have the Russian-Ukrainian conflict that really uh, starts to drive things uh, wild, uh, for lack of a better term. Most of us yeah. haven't seen this kind of, of market uh, movement and reaction in this space. Um, you know, wheat was a leader in that, uh, for obvious reasons, Ukraine's a massive wheat player. Um, you know, they're the fourth largest exporter in the world for, uh, grains as a whole. Um, and having that, uh, locked out of the world market space has really increased our volatility. Right. Back to South America, it seemed like almost this year that was, um, cause I remember last year there was a lot of talk about dryness and whatever, and that sometimes... I don't know if that just never came to fruition, but this time nobody was talking about it. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, there's going to be a lot less grain come out of South America. So it seemed like a little more of a surprise maybe to the marketplace this time around. We didn't see steady decrease adjustments um, like we normally would as you you kind of go into a drought type of situation. 
uh, it seemed like we got to about a third of the way into February and then it just all of a sudden just this big reduction in right. uh, production guesses for uh, Brazil and Argentina both. Yeah. And I, I know it's always interesting to, to discuss drought and crop shortages on a continent where it seems like every year is a record number of acres planted. But I guess, uh, <laughs> you know, like if we like I, I always try to cross it over to the United States. Right. And it seems like I mean, if we were planting that many more acres like in or bringing those acres into production every year, like it would obliterate our grain markets, it would seem like. Right. But there, I guess that's all just built into the marketplace. And essentially the world knows that there's going to be that many more acres of soybeans, for example, planted every single year for it seems like the foreseeable future. Yeah, South America is usually, a, I mean, for lack of a better word, a wild card. Uh, I know when they were talking about reduction in crop down there with the drought talk, I mean, nobody could really put a pencil on it. I mean, there yeah. are a lot of outlier numbers. Like he said, I mean, 15% reduction in crops across the board. Uh, at one point, they were talking 25, 35, 45 reduction right. across the board. But nobody could really peg it. So that's where you started to see some of the volatility uh, really kick off. Uh, guys were just kind of out there throwing numbers in the air and sure the market really at that point needed something to trade i mean buy the rumor sell the fact type stuff i mean it didn't have to be accurate as long as it was something to trade off of (laughs) and unfortunately south america's got that kind of swing so oh sure yeah with the amount of acres in in production anymore and then yeah obviously the the ukrainian um conflict and we don't need to go too in depth but you know obviously there's a significant portion of the you know, European planted acres that, that come from that country. I mean, there's very obvious natural resource concern reasons that it is a conflict zone. Um, so, I mean, and I guess it's just a matter of, of I assume at this point, um, when, when or if exports pick up from there, I assume again, and then if they're going to plant a crop, is that kind of the, the, the unknowns, if you will, from that zone. Yeah, that, that all kind of covers it. Uh, you know, the the winter wheat's already there; it's planted. Uh, you know, but how many acres of that's in a conflicted area, uh, to where they're not necessarily going to be able to harvest it to get it out? Um, and Ukraine's going to be a, a massive logistical problem um, for their exports because everything goes out on Black Sea ports. Right. Uh, their infrastructure on rail is a, a narrower gauge than the rest of Europe, uh, so they can't export uh, readily by rail. Uh, they do have a little bit of river terminal shipments, uh, but again, traditionally, they focus on deep seaport stuff, mm-hmm. um, and then a little bit of truck. Um, when the Ukrainian conflict started, uh, they had roughly 15 million metric tons of corn already sold for the export year, and they're not going to be able to get it out. Five days into the conflict, they shut down all the ports. Um, and you know, over the weekend and, and this morning's news is all focused kind of around on Russia is attacking and shelling uh, Odessa and uh, the other deep sea port. Uh, I can't pronounce the name, it starts with an M. Um, and there's talk like there could be two to three years worth of damage to those ports. Yeah. Um, before they can actually get back into uh, full export production. So, again, Ukraine being the fourth largest exporter in the world, if that takes them out of the northern Africa, European export play for the next two to three years, that's got to be replaced on the world stage from somewhere. Yeah, that's a that's a big yeah. deal. And, and you're right. I, I mean, I always think the same thing when you watch videos and, and whatnot from over there and you, and you kind of look at big piles of rubble and all that kind of stuff, it's... Um, I mean, again, you always try to extrapolate it to something you're familiar with and you're like, my goodness, if, you know, if all of our river terminals were all of a sudden giant piles of rubble, we wouldn't be able to export anything. I mean, you're talking years of, of building that stuff back and, um, it's, it's a long-term deal for sure. And also, um, I'm proud of myself that I fully understood your gauge reference there. And I feel like that's from being a parent and watching Thomas and Friends um, for, for multiple years there. So, <laughs> that, that's so, all, all based on the width of the rail tracks. So, I uh, feel very well versed in the, in the width of rail tracks uh, at this point. So we can all thank cartoons for that. 
let's bring it back home. I, we, we know that, I mean, there's always a certain amount of conflict and just flux in, in a lot of that overseas market. Um, but as far as, as kind of U.S. production, um, as we came out of last year, maybe even before this kind of recent run-up, um, what's kind of the background that's, that's going on for this 22 crop that we're about to put in the ground? Um, you know, the, the report came out uh, on Thursday last week, um, and everybody's been watching uh, new crop prices, uh, and we, we've rallied in uh, from, since last fall in and uh, you know th that ratio of corn to beans is always something to keep an eye on uh, and as we came in through uh, the first part of the year here uh, that ratio really came in you'd like to see it at two and a half to one uh, price corn to beans and uh, you know towards the end of March we were right in over 2.08 uh, is, is and that's the lowest it's been since uh, mid of 2019 uh, so that kind of leads you to believe that, you know, the market space wants more corn acres. Right. Uh, but we came into the report uh, on Thursday um, and the USDA came out with their, their surveyed data from all the farmers uh, and only calling 89.4 million acres of corn. Uh, quite a bit lower than what the trade estimate was. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, 2.5 million acres below average trade guess. Um, and quite a bit lower than the high trade guess. And, you know, we saw soybeans coming out at 90.96, which is 2.2 million above trade guess. Mm -hmm. You know, the market space last runner was wanting to talk more beans, more beans, more beans, uh, solely due based on input prices. Right. Uh, and whether or not the farmer is going to want to uh, put the risk out on the table to, to do uh, more corn acres. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the math still, at least for those places that grow good corn, heavy corn, uh, still bears out. Corn still is more profitable per acre. Uh, but then you turn around and you talk to a smaller farmer, you know, that may not have as big of a, a footprint at the bank or something like that. And I, he physically can't cash flow those additional corn acres. I think you nailed it right there, Tyler. I, I appreciate you saying that because I heard some talking head analyst the other day, which, I mean, I guess that's what we are, but uh, essentially saying, is, well, it just doesn't make any sense, you know, because, you know, when I, when I did the calculations, you could make more money off corn. So why are people, and you're exactly right. It, it's because like the amount of risk that you're carrying as a grower for the entire season, um, on a full-on corn crop like that, especially this year, um, is crazy. And so it's there's profit in both crops. It's not like it's one or the other, and and it's a risk aversion, right? I mean, so when you when you have input prices and and fertilizer prices as high as they are, I, I think you're going to see more of that risk aversion. Um, so absolutely, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And uh, that being said, I feel like the market very recently here has tried to dictate more corn acres, but I almost feel like last fall it was a little more geared towards, you know, hey, bean prices are pretty high. And I, I feel like that almost the end of the crop before is when a lot of decisions for the U.S. take place, or at least our part of the world, I feel like take place in the fall. You know, not, we don't, I don't feel like we flip a lot of acres in the spring. What do you guys think on the acre thing for like us? Here. I think traditionally, I don't know too many guys that are trying to outguess the market with their planning. You're going to have a little bit of a swing here or there. I right. Mean, it feels like just more traditionally in the Midwest. I mean, this is our rotation. We're going to stick to it. I mean, yeah. you might have a field that you didn't get anhydrous on in the fall. You might have a field that's pretty yeah. wet. And you know it's going to be wet in the spring when you're trying to do some field work. But I mean, traditionally, you're not seeing just big acre swings. I mean, right. Right. And, you know, most of our footprint, you know, you talk to most of our, our locations out in the country, uh, we had a big run on our fall fertilizer uh, this past year versus years past. Uh, you know, so, so we saw a lot of guys go ahead and jump in and, and, and say, this is how many corn acres I'm going to go ahead and put in. Right. Uh, you know, if I can get the inputs on the field, like Tyler said, mm -hmm. uh, you know, my family farm's not much difference uh, back home. We had uh, a farm that we traditionally would plant beans on, but we were able to go ahead and get the fertilizer put on last fall and the ammonia and everything uh, before prices jumped. 
So, you know, we got that done, but that's because we had enough open time in the fall to get it uh, in place. Yep. Uh, you know, you get into places that aren't as traditionally uh, doing a fall run. Uh, you get down like in the Delta areas of the, the U.S. belt. Uh, that's where we've seen probably the bigger swing. Uh, the beans uh, switch from corn. Uh, those guys can't do fall ammonia. Right. Uh, you know, the temperatures are too warm and uh, the microbe activity is going to uh, gas that fertilizer off and you can't keep it. Right. Uh, so those guys are forced to run the spring uh, fertilizer program, um, and nobody's willing to carry quarter four tons over to quarter one anymore, uh, like they used to. So those guys are all faced with these higher spring prices. So you're seeing that that Delta Belt is really where the USDA was pulling more of the bean acres out this year than I got you. last year. Yeah, and it's probably easier for those guys. I mean. It's easier for those guys, too, in their rotation because, I mean, they have so many more crops that they're rotating in as well. So, I mean, mm -hmm. when you're mixing in cotton, rice, and all those, their it, rotation, it, it they have like, a bigger flexibility of what their rotation is It does seem be. like there's a lot more flux in the areas that right. have more crop options, I guess. So, yes. like, I always think of the Dakotas and then the kind of that Delta region both as areas where it seems like there's more flux. I mean, is that pretty much true? Year over year. Yeah, year over year, that's where your acre switches are going to uh, occur. And, and, you know, you're talking about the Dakotas. Uh, you know, this, uh, North Dakota in particular this year is picking up a pile of small grains production uh, that they haven't done as much of in the past. But that's all on the heels of the Canadian drought last year. So your canola, your lentils, your peas, uh, mm -hmm. a lot of that stuff, uh, we're really seeing a big uptick of that. Uh, up in North Dakota, that's because Canada didn't have a crop last year. Yeah. So those guys are able to lock in some hefty premiums versus normal. Right, right. So I guess in the situation that that we currently find ourselves in then, um, I guess, I mean, what, I feel like we're a little bit, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, I feel like we're a little bit in jeopardy because I feel like there's a lot of industries or just like you mentioned the small grains, the lentils, we mentioned how much we needed corn because Ukraine's not exporting any. It's one of the first times I can remember we have a lot of needs in the discussion and, and not so much, well, which one's going to make more money. It's a lot, There's a lot of industries that need this crop that's going in the ground. Um, and if you look at just kind of nationwide at the, at the drought monitor, um, for example, I don't know if you want to use that as a guy. I don't know if that's a, a good parameter to use as a guideline or not, but I mean, it covers a pretty good portion of the country. So, I mean, it, are there any kind of fears out there on the supply side of things from, from any industries or um, a, about what happens in certain geographies if we, if we don't put up numbers that everybody thinks that we're going to? Not that I can see right off hand. I mean, I haven't come across anything where it's like, oh, we're not going to have it. We're not going to have it. Sure. Um, I think... He kind of touched on the report last week, uh, corn acres coming in below bean acres. I think that was probably one of the bigger shocks that we've seen come across. I've never seen it. Like back three years ago, we saw them come in even, but I've never seen those numbers flipped. I got you. Uh, we were kind of joking, or I was, that I feel like the USDA just kind of gave the wrong numbers and said, we don't have time to fix it. Just put it out and we'll sort it out <laughs> through the year. But, which which is historically kind of what happens anyway, right? Those numbers get edited as They do through the year. It's whenever they kind of feel like they actually need to come in. I mean, June will be a pretty big tell. The June report comes out. Uh, they usually kind of update a little bit. You can kind of see those numbers come back together. Or I mean, we've also seen them widen out in the last 10 years where it gets even more out of hand. Right. But, I mean, as far as a shortage standpoint, I think that was probably the biggest that I saw. I mean, as far as corn acres coming in below okay. on the total. You know, fear from an industry standpoint, uh, not necessarily on a crop shortage uh, by any means, but uh, when you, the Russia-Ukraine conflict started, we saw wheat volatility really go uh, through the roof. Um, and, you know, a lot of the farmers uh, saw what happened. Um, everybody pulled their cash bids away from wheat because the volatility got way out of whack. We saw wheat jump $350, 4 bucks, uh, in a very short amount of time. And talking to the flour mills, 
uh, a lot of them completely pulled completely out of the market because the flower buyers on the other side uh, basically said it's too high and our product's sitting on the shelf. The consumer's not going to buy it at these kind of levels and we're just not going to take the risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and that market has been fairly tight fisted for the last three weeks on even getting any type of uh, number out of. Yeah. If we go to try to sell any wheat uh, or, or move any cash wheat. Um, and we saw even on new crop wheat, everybody took their bids away from the traditional uh, futures month of July and went from the July to the September and only on the September for what, five days maybe? And then we were forced all the way out to the December mm-hmm. uh, just to try to find liquidity in the market space because the volatility was too high. Right. Um, so there's some fear there just from a manufacturing standpoint on cost of goods. Yeah, exactly. I, th- I think that's a great point. And that I probably didn't explain myself well enough there, but I, I think that's kind of what I was thinking of. And, you know, the $7 corn world is something that we just haven't seen too often. And um, what what number is that for corn, I guess, is, is kind of where my mind's at. It's like, we're starting the season and, and sure, we could – we can always blow production out of the water and, and not have to worry about this this fall. Everybody's selling five dollar corn, right? That's not that's entirely possible. Um, but also, you know, at at what point does that demand start to to wane? You know, like are are people going to feed cows eight dollar eight fifty corn? Um, I mean, that's I think that's a question at some point that somebody may have to ask. You know, I think that's all, all going to get tied back into inflation. You know, a lot of the market space yep. has been talking about that. Yep. And that, that goes back to your, your everyday consumer. You know, sure. how much money do they have uh, to spend on groceries? Uh, and that, that's all going to translate back to farm at some point. Um, you know, we've seen $7 corn hit the market space a couple times. Um, and it typically doesn't last very long because, as you said, we kind of start to get some demand destruction there. Right. Uh, you know, the current space we're in right now, uh, you've got a crude oil market that's uh, very supported over a hundred bucks. Um, we did get out to 135, 136. Uh, same reason why we sold $7 corn in 08 because we broke a hundred dollars a barrel on oil. Right. Um, you know, plus we've got the Ukrainian issue now. So we've got a, a big piece out uh, on that part of the table. Um, so that's probably going to keep things supported uh, in the short term here. And, you know, our administration doesn't seem to be uh, pro-fossil fuel, so that's probably going to keep uh, oil prices supported. Uh, plus, everybody's trying to lock Russia out of the, the world oil market. Right. Um, so, corn should stay relatively supported at these prices for now. Now, sure. like Tyler said, you know, we could the June acreage report come out, and, and do we see a big advisement adjustment from the USDA from... 89 back up to that trade expectation and 92 and a half million right acres uh it's possible uh, but at this point in time you know how much of that's actually going to be switched because of it makes more sense on dollars per acre or yeah. uh are we actually going to be able to plant more additional corn acres because we've got the time to get in the field yeah i mean weather certainly has a, an impact on that but you know i don't think a whole I mean, it's not like fertilizer prices have come down and, and folks are, are looking at it now saying, well, you know what? It, it has dropped a little bit. I, I, you know, I would put some more corn in the ground. I don't think anybody's going to be super excited about paying a dollar 25, I don't know, dollar 25, dollar 30, dollar 50 of a pound of nitrogen to, to put a crop in the ground. You know, um, nobody's super excited about forking over that much money and carrying that much risk for the entire growing season. But anyway, um, so how do you guys think this has kind of changed does or does it change kind of our, our marketing plan? And I know you guys are big on, um, and, and Eric did a good job kind of explaining, I know, uh, previously, and I should have looked up what episode number that was, but if, 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 if you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to the, the grain marketing episode we did with Eric Williams. But, um, how does that ch- kind of change how we look at marketing the crop kind of through the year, the, the amount of volatility that we see? I mean, should we, obviously what we're looking at are good numbers, right? I'm, I mean, I'm looking, if I pull the board up right now, I'm looking at profitable, you know, grain price numbers. Does that mean I should sell more ahead of time? 
um, or or how do you think that kind of changes our, our scheme throughout the year? I feel like fundamentally it shouldn't change a whole lot. I mean, guys still need to be sitting down. Uh, I always had my producers sit down and they could tell me to the dollar what a break even would be. Mm-hmm. So kind of take what you're looking at as far as an average crop for you. I mean, what's it cost you to put it in the ground and price per bushel? I mean, what is a good sale? I mean, a good sale to me is something where you're not losing any money. You don't have to hit a home run every time. And I think a lot of guys kind of get caught up in that where they want to make the one big sale, hit the high every year when the best marketers I've seen are your guys that are hitting your averages. I mean, they'll just make these stair-step sales on the way up. And those have been good, like the guys that traditionally have their best years just because they're not getting caught up. I mean, they put too much emotion into it trying to sell that home run shot. Mm-hmm. And you're not. I mean, nine times out of ten, you'll sell the low before you hit the high. And, right. I mean, it's just the way it is. But just taking the emotion out, just know what your break even is, where you can make money at. Every operation is different, so the number's not the same between any two guys. But just having that idea, and if the market, I've always been a big guy that if the market rewards you, reward it back a little bit. I mean, we see pretty good upsell day on the corner beans. Call and sell a little bit, sell a load, sell two loads. I mean, do something. You know, you can't hold it all. So, I mean, just kind of feed the beast as it wants it. It's kind of always been my game plan. No, I I think that's a good point, Tyler. Is I mean, we talked about this last time when we had Eric on. Is is how many producers understanding what it costs per per acre for their operation, and being able to understand that, so then when they are trying to lock in their corn price, corner bean prices, they they can feel good about it instead of trying to just say, "Well, I got to try to hit the home run because I don't know exactly where I need to be." But mm-hmm. those guys that have an understanding, it's a lot easier for them to market grain because they just know, "Hey, I got to hit this point to break even." But anything above this, this is where I'm, you know, this is where I'm going to be better. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think guys need to sit down and have a prudent marketing plan in place. Uh, We've seen the volatility in the market space shifting so fast in the last three to four weeks. Uh, The market's trading faster than guys can literally pick up the phone and lock something in. Uh, We've we've had issues uh, in here uh, trying to get things locked down. Uh, on the border trade ourselves just because it's moving that quick. Um, I go back to wheat being the, the big volatile one. Uh, the other day we were watching a wheat was a uh, locked limit down $1.30 uh, on a nearby cash contract and it wasn't moving at all. And uh, some news came out about some easing tensions with the Russia-Ukraine thing uh, in the news that the market seemed to kind of believed. And within two minutes, wheat had already traded $1.30 higher. <laughs> in two minutes yeah. and you can't pick up the phone and call your uh, grain terminal or, or where you're marketing your grain and get a transaction done in two minutes right. uh, I've been trying to encourage guys to put market orders in with your marketers that uh, good till cancels uh, you know that way you, if you want to sell a certain price level if it hits on the overnight uh, you can get that price locked in uh, we had uh, a gentleman um, on the report date, uh, put in some market orders that structured in, um, and he had a, a particular order in for 50,000 bushels of corn, and he only got uh, 20,000 of that filled. The market came up, and there was only a buyer for four contracts, and that was it. He put an order for 10, and he only got four filled. Uh, you know, the, the market volatility is, is very hard to stay on top of. Yeah. And... Have that plan in place and talk to your grain people that you're selling to and get those target orders put in because you don't want to miss it. Right, right. It's just, you know, I know that, and I probably complained about this to Eric too, but I I know that we're supposed to take the uh, emotional parts out of it and you kind of know what you're supposed to do. It's just very disheartening when you, I feel like all we've been on is sort of kind of the upswing, like since harvest of last year and so it's very hard to maintain those and like you know you sell a bunch and then it goes up another dollar and then you like look at those bushels that you sold for a dollar less and then you're supposed to sell more and then it goes up again and so eventually it's like am i doing the right thing or am i just selling cheap grain it's really hard i mean it's easy for me to sit here and say take the emotion out of it when i'm talking about your checking account right i mean that's the easy part for me to say because i've just i don't have a dog in the fight but 
mean, a guy's got to be able to do it to some extent. Yes, absolutely. I feel like that does lead to what you were talking about as far as like feeding the market, though. I feel like it does lead to guys just saying, just kind of throwing up their hands and just locking down and saying, you know what, I'm just going to ride it out and and see what happens. Even if they've got current grain in the bins, I feel like sometimes that's what um, what folks will do, which is probably not the best <laughs> not probably not the best strategy somebody could use there. Well, and, and a lot of guys they'll wind up marketing cash grain when when a bill comes in the mailbox. Yeah. Um, and you know, I've got a bin full of grain and you know, it's corn or beans or wheat or what I've got on the farm. And that's what guys think about it as. And it's not really that. It's a bin full of money. Yeah. That's what it is. Right. And it's a bin full of uh, disposable money that's got condition risk and everything else against it. It's not just money in the bank that I can just go withdraw from. Uh, you know, I go open the bin lid and, and oh, I've got bugs in the top or it's gotten moldy or sour or something else. And, and now you've got discounts against your money that you can't pull back out against. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. No, that's a good explanation. And it, um, so I asked you, I think what, what we should have been doing, uh, what we should continue to do. Is there anything, you know, I, I think if you looked, if, if I just pulled up the graph of the board price for the last 10 years or whatever, um, I think we could call some of this unprecedented movement. So, I mean, is there something that I should do? Should I make those, you know, those price sales that I'm talking about? I mean, should, should we lengthen those out? I mean, is there anything different that we should do in a, in a market that really is n- unlike what we've seen, you know, recently. In an extremely volatile market like we've been trading in, I think probably one of the worst things you can do is try and outguess it, because you can't. I mean, right. Nobody can sit here and tell you exactly what it's gonna do. If a guy ever set me down and said, this is what's gonna happen, I'm probably the first guy to leave the room, just, you don't know. <laughs> so there's no reason to get real flashy about what you're trying to do. I mean, the end game at the end of the day is you're wanting to make money. So, I mean, if, right. like we talked right. about earlier, you know what your inputs are, you know what your break even is, know where you can make your sales to make a good sale. And I mean, I think that should just pretty well be the structure, no matter what kind of market space we're trading in, whether we're swinging mm-hmm. these huge volatile swings or I mean, it's kind of the ho-hum, we've seen a 25 cent kind of trade range. I mean, just knowing where you're at and where you need to be. I mean, that's kind of how guys need to approach it. Especially, I mean, in these volatile type markets. Sure. I, I wouldn't wait around uh, too long if you don't have anything sold. Uh, the hedge funds are very heavy in our space right now due to uh, the outside world issues. And if the Ukrainian conflict resolves itself by the end of the week, uh, you could be seeing anywhere from a $1.50 to $3 come out of beans. Uh, you could see a dollar to two dollars come out of corn, mm-hmm. um, and you know if if you're the guy that's paying for these spring input prices, you don't have that cushion of the the cheaper fall prices. You need to cover that risk now, not wait. Uh, understand? We we keep seeing the market wanting to kind of support things and, and and hold it with a higher bracket, but we've also got to remember it can take it away just as fast as put it on the table. Absolutely, um, and. You know, when you're sitting here looking at an average APH on beans of uh, 50, 55 bushels, the market can take a dollar fifty away from you in a space of two days mm-hmm. on on bean limits right now. Not real hard, and yeah. that's your profitability if you don't have anything locked in. No, I agree, and I and I think the the whole supply demand thing. I think we as um, as folks in the industry or or farmers ourselves. I think we kind of grasp a lot of that. I definitely do not grasp well, like the hedge fund involvement in commodities and like, because they're not, they're not dealing with an actual physical anything. Right. I mean, it's just money flow. Right. And I I think that's something that we in the industry, or at least, especially on the grower side, I'll put myself in this bucket then and, and say that, I think we fully, we fail to grasp because we're very used to the commodity part of it where I have this bin full of money. And so I have something, I'm going to sell it to you, you know, at, at this price. And and we don't exactly, I don't think we do a good job of comprehending the the hedge fund investor, you know, that, that just trade paper. Yeah. Uh, I have to go back and look at my timetable, but sometime in uh, February, 
managed money funds were roughly 15,000 contracts short Chicago wheat. Um, and by the 8th of March, they were 60,000 contracts long. A contract's <laughs> 5,000 bushels. Yeah. <laughs> so in, in a matter of two weeks, the, the, the hedge funds bought and sold 400 million bushels of wheat on paper. Right. <laughs> and it's just paper trade. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just, yeah, just that kind of stuff is, like I said, that kind of stuff right there is what I, uh, you know, very transparently, I just I just don't understand that the whole money flow in and out of, of things like that. And, and the hedge fund is, is going to stay in our space for a little bit. Uh, you know, we'll go back to the inflationary thing for just a minute. Uh, you know, we've seen the Fed come out here uh, a little bit ago. They're going to start uh, upping interest rates. Um, they're taking money out of the bond program, uh, out of the stock market. Uh, so the hedge funds have got to put their money somewhere. Mm-hmm. And if they don't feel like the stock market is a place to go for it, the standard bet for inflationary uh, risk is commodities. So that's where they're going to put it at. So they're going to be prevalent in our space. Um, and it's, you know, having the hedge funds in our space is a great thing because it does add a lot to that volatility and gives the farmer an opportunity to uh, maybe hit some numbers that might be a little higher than what regular supply and demand stuff would support. Right. Uh, but at the same time, they can take that money out just as fast as they put it in there. That's excellent advice. Our crop insurance prices were, and, I, and we've discussed, I think, you know, briefly before kind of the impact of of grain marketing and crop insurance and how they are and, and should be essentially tied together. Um, the, the one positive thing, I think looking into 22 about, um, about the marketplace and, and feeling secure in some of that risk that we've discussed that everybody's got in the crop, um, are the, are the guaranteed crop insurance prices for this year are, are pretty high for, for both commodities or, you know, corn and beans. And so I think that gives you a little more flexibility in that, that marketing plan as well. So it, it should make you feel uh, at least a little bit more confident in, in my mind. Uh, you know, corn uh, for the February price came out at 590. Uh, that's an 11 year high. Uh, soybeans hit an all time record high at 1433. Um, so that's put a really good floor, yeah. uh, in my mind at least, for a producer to, to protect a, a lot of his input uh, risk uh, that he's got on the table. Uh, but, you know, the close today, I. Um, December corn's right at seven dollars, and beans are where do beans close that time? All about fifteen seventy, I believe, on the board today. After yeah. being down so, the last couple of days, yeah, yeah. New crop prices are already quite a bit higher than the, the February support price on the insurance. Yeah. Um, so even at those elevated levels. All right, I'm gonna put you both on the spot one time here, real quick, before we change topics. So today, April fourth, is in uh, what percentage of 22 crop should we have already marketed? I'm a big proponent of having somewhere between 25 and 30 percent of your crop marketed prior to going to the ground. Okay, I've always been in that book. Are you you're gonna cheat because he, we didn't have no? I mean, it's kind of. I'm not saying it's universal, but I mean, we read the same market wire, so I mean, I'm always that 20 to 25 percent. I mean, I'd probably go a little bit lower. I mean, this early, just with weather, I'd probably be about 15 to 20. Honestly, but I mean, right there in that range, that fifteen to twenty-five percent, you're not. It's hard to go wrong right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, especially at this point, you know, we're after you know we're after crop insurance date. That all that paperwork signed, submitted, you know, policies in place. Um, uh, yeah, that that takes a little of that risk off off the top, but but good. All right, so feel good about where you're at, then, Adam. No, I probably need to sell some more stuff. <laughs> completely honest. I just thought I'd check. Since you asked the question, I'll get that chair on the spot. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. That's a different episode talking about Adam's strategy. A lot of our growers take advantage of this and, and whatnot in, in looking at moving grain through a, a cooperative system. And, and so uh, I'm hoping you guys can speak to this a little bit uh, because there are some benefits out there, uh, both obviously just from the uh, dealing with a business that you're a, a vested owner in. I mean, obviously in the, in the ag sector, it's something that we, I think, take for granted, honestly. Um, but also, you know, from a from a tax purpose and a, and a financial side of things. Um, you want to go into some of that, Tyler? Or? 
Can yeah, you do that? Uh, so we can jump into that. Uh, so uh, what you're referring to is the DPAD deduction. Uh, that's uh, domestic production activity deduction. Um, so selling grain through MFA through cooperative, that's something that, that our board elects to uh, pass back to the growers. Um, and we have elected the last couple of years to, to kick quite a bit of that back to the growers. Um, and it, it's a, a big advantage uh, that uh, a lot of guys have been able to use with us. Um, now these are average uh, rates across the, the entire company's uh, uh, purchases uh, bushel wise. Uh, but this past year, we sent out a letter. Um, the average rate uh, on a cent per bushel for corn uh, was 17.7 cents. Uh, back to the grower, soybeans was 45 cents, uh, wheat was 24 cents, and milo was 20 cents. Um, and these are deductions that you can take uh, back against your taxes 100% mm -hmm. um, that you're not going to see uh, coming back from uh, the big private uh, guys, uh, ADM, Cargill. Uh, and those type of entities because they don't uh, have uh, access to do this um, versus a cooperative structure. Um, and you don't have to bring that grain into an MFA location in order to uh, qualify for those type of uh, benefits. Uh, we have a number of producers that work with us that go uh, direct to a terminal uh, under our locations uh, contracts. Um, so that way the producer can get the benefit of going straight to the end user uh, rather than have to run it through one of our facilities where we've got overhead costs that we've got to cover and transportation and that kind of stuff to get it to that end user. Right. Um, so they could go direct to that soybean processor or that feed mill or uh, that hog production or, or that chicken production and get that bid um, and still be able to qualify for this tax deduction that we could pass through as a cooperative. I think I think that's something that we probably don't do a, a good enough job talking about, just yeah. because um, again, it doesn't. It's not one of those um, things that makes a lot of sense, right? Like you're you're actually selling through us, but delivering somewhere straight to the end user or whatever. It just yeah. I guess in your mind, it, it seems like the check ought to come from whoever's pit you're dumping into. Um, but essentially, at that point, with your transportation, you're you're saving us a step, right? And so that's kind of why we're able to. To, to do that transaction. I mean, it's one of your more useful tools. I mean, your farm to terminal stuff, just your direct bushels, no one spot's ever going to be the market every single time. Right. I mean, in anything agriculture, there's so much competition that, I mean, it's just not feasible. I mean, you look at how many rail lines, how many barge loaders. I mean, you got soy processors, you got you know, ethanol plants, feeders. I mean, at any given point, somebody's need is not going to be the same as the neighbor next door so they might have to go out there and spend that extra money to get bought in what they're needing so i mean your farm to terminal stuff that could be one of your most useful tools that you have as a marketer mm -hmm. so i mean you're not tied to well i have to go here it's this location like well this guy is paying 30 cents more cost you a dime more to get over there put 20 cents in your pocket run through us so i mean i think it's something that probably as a company we need to push a little bit harder i mean it is a like i said can be a very profitable tool and probably one of your it's going to be one of your handier things that you've got. I mean, yeah, from just a basic trading standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree. And and just that the deduction part of it and whatnot is, is something that I'm not going to pretend to fully understand other than that, than I understand enough to utilize it, I guess. But um, that's, that's about the extent of my understanding of it, but, um, but it makes sense. Right. And it's certainly an advantage um, from, from selling through the, cooperative system so um. well and, and as high as grain prices as we got we keep talking about that um, every farmer uh, needs as many deductions as they can find yep um, and again that's something you're not going to pick up from selling direct to Cargill or ADM um, or uh, that ethanol plant down the road right you know they just don't have that cooperative benefit like we've got Right. And MFA's footprint uh, is, is so big that that's what allows us to really get a large deduction um, out there for the farmer. Uh, whereas you see smaller footprint cooperatives don't have as big of a uh, payroll option to get that deduction out there like MFA does. Gotcha. Yeah. Gentlemen, what did I not ask you that you have been sitting over there saying, well, I wish he'd asked me about this. Anything? 
I've asked you every question that you expected today. I like to be a little more unpredictable than that. <laughs> so you really just you came in hot. <laughs> um, we didn't really touch anything on, on logistics. Um, that's something that the farmer doesn't really see too much on a day-to-day basis uh, out of the commercial uh, space. Uh, unless it's harvest time, right? Um, you know, everybody's logistics are tight during harvest time. Uh, with the the volatility with the Ukrainian thing, we've seen our export market kind of turned on its head here in the last three or four weeks. Uh, everybody was running more domestic rail line type freight, uh, not pushing exports too much to the Gulf, um, and everything got flipped on its head after the invasion. Um, I'll use the UP car freight for reference. Um, in February, uh, UP rail freight was 650 bucks, 900 bucks a car. Um, and now UP freight has traded all the way up to $6,000 a car, $6,500 a car. Uh, so we're going from 20 cents a bushel uh, to ship grain on car cost all the way over $2 a bushel. Um, that volatility in the market uh, has been difficult for the commercial space to navigate around um, and logistics are still a mess and they're continuing to be that way uh, and that, that's going to be a challenge that the, the commodity space has got to deal with I think all the way through next fall uh, as we get into things. Um, you know, living in kind of a post-COVID type world, that's that's part of the logistical problem. Uh, they don't have the manpower or the crews, and, and we see that in our space everywhere, not just trains, but we, we see that with trucks. Uh, you know, vessel shipments are also having issues with uh, manpower and that kind of stuff, um, and that's created its own volatility in the space uh, that we're having to deal with. So we're starting to see the market space deal with a lack of the just-in-time product placement. Right, right. I, and that, yeah, I, I think that's well said, and and I guess it carries across. I feel like some of that higher price, too, in that a lot of it is is labor, you know, driven. It's like we can, we can all pretend like if fuel goes way back down that everything just magically gets cheaper again but that's really not when you look at like rail or, or hiring people to, to to be a crew on a ship i mean those labor costs are going to remain elevated uh, for the foreseeable future if you want to hire anybody yeah they are. i mean so I, I just i feel like that's going to carry us further into the future than what you know maybe some of those commodity up, upswings or downswings uh, may bring yeah, so, it will. I mean, like it or not, we're, we're losing roughly 30% of our workforce. They're yeah. retiring on us. Yeah. Um, and we don't have the people to replace them. Yeah. Yep. Hmm. Yeah. I guess the only other question I was thinking is we talked a lot about corn, soybean, and weeds, but I mean, you talked about Milo. Should everybody, should Adam be thinking about changing over to Milo? <laughs> What's the, I mean, is there volatility there? Or should we? Milo <laughs> has become a fickle crop. Um, it, it's very, it, it's so much like a specialty crop anymore yeah. uh, that, that it's hard to kind of say yes or no on Milo. <laughs> um, in the last couple of years, we've seen Milo premiums uh, for the guys that have stayed in the game. Uh, we've seen Milo premiums trade a dollar, dollar twenty-five over the price of corn, uh, where traditionally Milo used to be eighty-five percent price of corn, um, just as a feed grade substitute. Um, you know, China came in uh, a couple of years ago and really took the Milo out of our market because it's non-GMO. They didn't have import restrictions against it, so they brought that in for. Uh, feed usage and that stuff, uh, and plus it's a big alcohol consumption uh, in the Asian markets, all Milo-based production. Um, Interesting. And, you know, last year um, we were kind of still chasing on the heels of of that big export push, Um, but we're talking about a larger portfolio of Milo acres uh, coming online, Um, you know, so does it pencil? Look at your operational costs. 
Um, you know, if, if I'm hearing of a five to 15% uh, increase in Milo in the area, um, can I afford to have Milo be sub cost of corn uh, before I make that planning decision? And, you know, that's that's something you need to really talk to your local elevator about. Uh, do they handle Milo? What price can they get for me today? Right. Uh, you know, Milo is cheaper to put in than a seed cost or cheaper. Inputs are slightly cheaper. Uh, the chemicals, I think, vary depending on what kind of package you want to run versus corn. Uh, but if you are going to plant Milo, I would probably be more proactive on your market plan with that right. than I would with corn. And the legit, I mean, we just talked about logistics, but the logistics of it, like you said, defining, you know, finding the elevator of who's going to take it, you know, cause not every, not everywhere takes Milo. Um, and so that, that logistics of it. I also found it interesting. We've had a whole grain talk here. And the first time we brought up China was when yeah. I, when I asked a question about Milo, <laughs> we talked all about the soybeans and everything. And we were just talking about South America the whole time. It's all because of the Ukrainian conflict thing. We didn't even talk about China, so I just thought yeah. that was interesting. They've kind of been not quiet, just not as right. relevant lately. I mean, the last 20, 30 days, I mean, you just haven't seen. They're still coming in. They're buying a little bit. I mean, this morning they bought a pretty decent chunk of corn. So, I mean, they're staying in the market, but they're not the mover. Yeah. I mean, they're not swinging as big a stick as they were. So, I mean, there's just other stuff that the market is really reacting to yeah. versus them, which is, I mean, war is not a breath of, breath of fresh air, but I mean, it's something new to trade. And I mean, China, I think they do come back to the table, but right now it's just the market's not been too interested just because they've stayed pretty mm-hmm. even on the course. So, Well, guys, I appreciate it. Anything else we missed? Probably lots of stuff. But well, we consider it's not Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So absolutely. you're going to plant 100% Milo. Yeah. <laughs> that would be an all afternoon discussion uh, that we'd have to have for sure there. Um, now, guys, thank, thanks so much for taking the time to come in here and, and sit down with us. I, I think uh, just a lot of good insights, um, things that we should be thinking about, uh, definitely should be thinking about probably more often than what we currently are. For sure appreciate the conversation and appreciate the time and thanks everybody out there for listening yeah appreciate it thank you thanks for having us on thank you thanks for listening to made for agriculture email comments and questions to podcast at mfa-inc.com